Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. Uh, today, joining me is JC Deswan. He is a lecturer in the economics department at Princeton and a partner at Cornwall Capital, a New York-based investment fund. Uh, at Princeton, he teaches classes in financial ethics as well as Asian capital markets, and he recently published uh, this great book titled Seeking Virtual in Finance, Contributing to a Society uh, in a Conflicted Industry, in which he suggests a framework for acting virtuously in finance and shining a light on inspiring individuals uh, in the industry. He challenges traditional concepts of success in the industry, making his work applicable to everyone in and outside the world of finance. So thank you so much for joining me today, Professor Deswan. Great, and thanks so much for having me here today. I'm, I'm really excited to, to have this conversation. Uh, and co-hosting the show with me is uh, my partner at, uh, at Policy Punchline. She is uh, our new president of the show. Uh, if you're wondering why Policy Punchline has been able to keep up with our update pace and been able to produce at such a ferocious pace, it is because of her effective management uh, of the team, uh, Rupav and Katraman. Uh, she is a junior in the politics department. So thanks so much for being here with me, Rupa. Of course, Tiger, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, so Professor Deswan, why don't we jump uh, right in? I thought I would start with a very broad uh, introductory question to who you are and also how it came about um, to, to, for you to write this book and your journey writing this book. So would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so so this, this book um, is really derived from a course I've been teaching at Princeton for the last 10 years on ethics and finance. Uh, provocatively, it's, uh, it's taught as a freshman seminar. And, um, and, and just, I, I should mention for, so I, as, as Tiger mentioned for context, I, I divide my time between teaching and uh, working in the investment world. But my angle into the investment world, I think it um, may have been a, a bit atypical in the sense that I studied public policy um, and economic development in graduate school. And I entered the industry with a view uh, or with a particular interest in understanding how the how finance could be a tool to help develop prosperity, to help uh, economic development. And, and my entry point into the industry was actually to invest in emerging markets and specifically in Asia. So I, I'd always had this interest um, uh, looking at finance as a force for good in society. And, um, and what I found as I began teaching, so I, I started teaching about 12 years ago, I, I found that a lot of my students are interested in going into finance, but they're uh, very concerned about being corrupted the minute they walk into their first job on Wall Street. Uh, and so I created this course on ethics and finance. And, uh, and what was interesting uh, to me is the first time I, I taught this course, half, halfway through the semester, uh, one of the students came to me and she said, why is it that we're so obsessively focused on unethical behavior? Why not talk about inspiring behavior? Why not talk about thoughtful people? And, and I thought, of course, why is it that we never talk about that um, and, and that we never really read about this? And so I went out to, to look for literature for the course on this. I, I couldn't really find any. And um, so I, I created, I, I ended up writing this book. And the idea 
was to identify remarkable individuals in the industry, but also individuals we could relate to. So they're, they're not altruistic necessarily. They're self-interested, uh, they're ambitious. Uh, many of them are successful, uh, each in their own way. But what I was looking for were individuals that were able to balance their self-interest with the collective interest, despite the enormous pressure that they often feel because of industry norms and because of the, instance, the incentives in the industry to conform to what is often the you know, focus on short-term profit maximization. And uh, so I, I went about to, uh, to find these individuals and I ended up, I think, writing about uh, like 60 uh, individuals and firms. And, and there's a lot that I think we can learn from them. Now, to be clear, and I want to make sure like, to mention this up front, is uh, the underlying premise here and my fundamental belief is that finance is a force for good. Right, and it's a force for good in society because one, it you know clearly fulfills a, um, a fundamental function in our economy, but it's also there's also some research that shows that it also it has all sorts of positive, uh, indirect consequences on society in that it it boosts uh, economic growth up to a certain level, it uh, it facilitates uh, entrepreneurship. It's um, helpful to corporate governance. Uh, it also uh, boosts innovation. So there are all sorts of things that are positive about uh, finance. But at the same time, it's hard not to observe the industry and come to the conclusion that, and not come to the conclusion that the industry over the last few decades seems to have swayed away from its client serving mission and from its singular focus on supporting the real economy. And so, uh, and, and, and I should mention, it's not all of finance, right? I wanna be clear about this. I, I think, in fact, it may be that the majority of finance is on the right side of the ledger there, but there's a large part of finance where uh, that's been growing and where there's a question mark as to its role in society. So to, to kind of, uh, uh, Finish this uh, like broad, uh, like a quick uh, overview. What I try to do is find these individuals and then tease out uh, a framework, essentially, like tease out a sense for if you if you were a well-intentioned person that wanted to go into the industry and wanted to be thoughtful about your impact on others what would be the markers of virtuous behavior? What would a virtuous career look like? And, and that's led to a framework. So in a nutshell, that, that's what I, I try to do. I think we would actually love to hear a little more about this framework. Um, so you propose a sort of four pillared way to assess the way in which financial, finance professionals affect each other. Um, and you reduce this to four tenets, serve your customers faithfully, do not extract value from others, treat colleagues with dignity, and as much as possible, apply your finance skills and resources towards the collective interest. Can you give us a sort of high level um, overview of these four tenants? Sure. So the, the first one, serve your customers' interests with their interest in mind, uh, even when no one's looking. And, and the point is that 
in the industry, often it's the case that no one is looking because so much of the uh, interaction between financial firms and their customers um, are, are regulated by the fine print, right? And so very often it's hard to, to know uh, like these dynamics. And, and the point is that there's no, uh, there's no virtue in a sense that is more important than serving your customers faithfully because that's your professional mandate, right? Um, and so, so that's the first point and there's no way around this. It's uh, you're in the business of serving customers, you're an intermediary, so that should be your foremost uh, goal. Now, the second pillar uh, reflects a conundrum and that's the part that I feel the industry may not have devoted as much attention to as, as it could, which is, and the conundrum is that uh, it's plausible or it's possible for you as a finance professional, as a financial firm to serve your customers very well or to do so by extracting value from the rest of society. And, and you often do it in a way that's unwitting. You're not necessarily aware of it. And it's just because um, by serving your customers well, you're fulfilling your professional mandate and it's good for your customer and it's good for you. Uh, but uh, there are all sorts of situations where the way in which you create value uh, for your customer is to extract value from other stakeholders. And, and that's the part where I think as an industry, we can be more thoughtful. Uh, the third pillar is, uh, so in the hierarchy, I would uh, argue that it's less important than the first, the first two but it's still critical in, now you look within the organization and it's really the extent to which you treat your colleagues, your employees with dignity, you help develop them and you, you empower them. And importantly, you promote diversity and you ensure that you don't discriminate. So, so that's within the organization and that's often not something that you would explicitly think of in terms of your impact on society, because it's a smaller constituency that, that you're addressing here, but it's, it's, a, it's an important point, I think. And then finally, what I found from uh, researching these role models is the extent to which many of them end up using their skill set and uh, in ways that express, so they use their skill set to serve society but outside of their uh, professional mandates, so outside of their jobs. And sometimes it's in parallel to their jobs. Sometimes it's after they leave the industry, but they, they leverage the skill set that they've developed, which is a, a very versatile skill set. They also leverage the networks that they've, uh, they've developed in order to more explicitly serve society. And these four pillars in my mind are a, a broad, kind of the broad markers of what a virtuous career in finance might look like. Yeah, thank you so much for this high-level overview. Um, I kind of want to jump right into what you talk about in chapter one, which is um, how finance can accommodate 
um, I'm quoting directly here, and even fuel people's propensity to self-serve because of its complexity, opacity, and the frequent asymmetry of knowledge base between finance professionals and their customers. Could you tell me a little bit about how you define the term um, asymmetry of information? And if we see these examples um, in, other, in other industries like medicine, consulting, real estate? Yeah, so first of all, I, I think there's, there's asymmetry of information in all industries. But I, my sense is that it's more pronounced in the finance industry. And as a result, it creates greater opportunity for finance professionals to self-serve. And the way I would think about uh, the um, information is asymmetry, it would be several components. One of them would be, so first of all, there's an asymmetry of knowledge base between customers and finance professionals. That is true in, in every industry, and it can be very extreme as in finance, right? If, you're, if you think of doctors, for instance, surgeons, there's a huge asymmetry of knowledge base, uh, but that may not be as pronounced in, you know, if you look at, I don't know, the bakery industry, for instance, right? So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is there's asymmetry of specific information in the sense of um, finance professionals have access to all sorts of pricing that uh, you wouldn't have access to in order to develop the services and the products that they offer to you. Um, so that's another piece. And then um, I would say finally, in, in that kind of broad concept of asymmetry of information, I would also include the fine print, which is particularly important in finance and uh, is available, uh, obviously, to, to customers, uh, but it's often a way to obfuscate the actual nature of the relationship between the finance firm, financial firm, and its customers. And so if you put all these things together, um, my sense is that there is greater asymmetry of information uh, in finance than many other industries not all industries, but on top of that, you have a situation where most people go into the finance industry because they find it uh, intellectually engaging, but also because it's potentially lucrative. And so the logic of the industry is very much focused on, on generating profits. That is probably not as much the case for taking another example right, that you mentioned, uh, medicine, right? In medicine, you wouldn't necessarily assume that someone went into, the, into medicine primarily because they, they thought it was lucrative. My assumption, and maybe I'm being too simplistic here, but if you're a doctor, if you're a nurse, uh, you would go into the, the medical profession primarily because you're motivated to serve others and to help others, right? And, and there are also other reasons why I think the finance industry might be different from other industries. Um, and, and again, you know, medical profession is an interesting one, but I, I do feel like there are more safeguards in the medical profession because now you have a regulator that's gonna be ultra focused on uh, the new treatments that are available, right? The FDA is gonna be incredibly focused on ensuring that these new treatments are, are uh, okay for their consumers. Obviously, we do have that as well in the finance industry, but I, I don't think that they would 
be so precisely focused on each product that comes out of financial service firms. And then the other safeguard is that you would have insurance companies and the insurance companies are going to be very focused also on uh, making sure that the products serve the interests of, of the customers and um, that, that use them and that they, they're not taking advantage of them. Now, this is overly simplistic, obviously, because medical profession has its own issues and we know that this costs are spiraling and so on. But I, I do feel like finance is a little bit in the league of, of its own in terms of that particular concept. I guess just to jump in a little bit deeper about this uh, concept, could we talk about, I guess, the tax influence on uh, how finance has kind of become more and more technologically complex and less accessible to non-professionals? Because for me, I, I think I often hear uh, two non-mutually exclusive sides of the story about um, finance recent development. One side often says, now there's greater ever complexity of financial products and therefore it made the industry harder to understand and regulate than ever. The other side would say, yes, our risk models and risk management products have become more complex than, than ever and therefore they can help better ma manage and regulate the industry. There's one side that says fintech innovations like robot, robot advisors can do tons of good. Uh, there's also another side that says um, the, the trend we're seeing today in terms of the greater ever complex financial products hurt retail consumers. So um, it, it both seem to contain some element of truth. I don't know where you stand on, the, on this issue of how financial products have just simply become so complex uh, in the past right. couple of decades. Yeah, I, so I think it goes both ways. Um, my sense is that a lot of <coughs> innovation in finance has ended up so if you, if you take the, the broad view, right, over the last few decades, a lot of finance innovation has uh, gone primarily to serve the interest of the industry, it seems. And if you look at like, what, what are the areas where there's been a lot of innovation? There's been a ton of innovation in derivatives. Um, and of course, derivatives options uh, at the core are an incredibly useful financial tool, and they uh, have a fundamental function in supporting the real economy. Uh, but in some ways, this felt like that was true of the first generations of these products that came out, where you know you have the proverbial like option for the airlines to hedge the cost of oil, right? And and all these things are very useful. Um, but if you look at the derivative industry today, it seems disproportionate in size to its uh, economic function and uh, to its ability to support the real economy because now you have these incredibly complex derivatives that uh, seem to be, that are like traded mostly between finance professionals and, and don't really seem to have a, you know, a real economic function. And so, I, you know, I, I certainly sympathize with uh, the view that innovation has mostly benefited the finance industry. And, and famously, of course, Paul Volcker said, you know, when asked, what was the greatest innovation in finance? I think it was asked about 10 years ago after the global financial crisis. 
what was the, the greatest innovation of finance industry over the last 25 years? And he said, the ATM machine, right? Which feels very pedestrian and simple. Since then, I think um, it has gone both ways in the sense that um, there is, um, there still is a lot of innovation where it's unclear the extent to which it benefits society. And in fact, uh, odds are that it doesn't really, it's more extracting value, uh, you know, high frequency trading, for instance, uh, you know, maybe it's neutral. Uh, I, you know, this is not an area I've, I've delved deep into, but I, it's, it's hard to see exactly the, the role it fills in, in the economy. And so there are all sorts of new areas like this. And, um, and of course, innovation is going to try to find new areas to generate profits. Now, where, where it gets a little bit more encouraging is that it seems like in, in recent years, you, we have seen innovation that goes uh, towards uh, the, the common good in the sense that it's, it's genuinely helpful to customers. And those are typically the kind of innovations that create uh, more simplicity and greater transparency, right, for them. Um, and so, so there, there are all sorts of apps that allow them to get greater access to their financial products. Um, you, you know, you mentioned robo advisors. Those are very helpful, right? I, I believe that those are helpful because they facilitate that process whereby uh, customers are, are not inherently fleeced by intermediaries who want to invest their money. They're kind of a channel towards passive investments that are balanced and diversified, which is exactly the kind of uh, investment strategy that, that makes sense for most people. And so I, I think in recent years, you would look at some of the innovation and feel I mean, it's very hard to quantify, and but I, I do feel like we're seeing more innovation recently that uh, is helpful rather than, than the tracks from the customer's interest. I have a, I'm curious about sort of the regulatory aspect of this. Um, how do you think these innovations are shaping the ability of regulators to write and control um, the types of asymmetry that are coming out of these innovations? Well, I mean, there, there's certainly, there, there's a lot of innovation that makes it harder for regulators, right? And, and what you find is that um, because there's so much complexity and so little transparency, the regulators by definition are gonna play catch up because they're not gonna necessarily be aware of what's going on until there's a problem. And this, you know, the perfect example for this was really the global financial crisis where you see a proliferation of derivatives, uh, whether it's you know, the collateralized debt obligations and the credit default swaps. And the way, the way they were used uh, wasn't clear to anyone in the system because there was no central repository to understand all of these transactions and where the risks were in the industry. And, and, and then you, you have the regulators playing catch up with, uh, with Dodd-Frank. And I think, you know, it's, uh, in, in some ways it's in the nature of the industry because it's such a, an industry that is, allows for innovation that is grassroots. And that innovation proliferates very quickly when it turns out to be profitable. 
it's always going to be difficult for, I think, regulators to uh, be able to be ahead of that. And as a result, there's a, there's a fair amount that lies uh, on the shoulders of the financial institutions themselves. And there's, there's an important piece of self-regulation here. Uh, something that really interested me later on was this quote you wrote saying, unethical behavior can be contagious. Um, in chapter one, you give an example of Wells Fargo and you say, um, quote, at Wells Fargo, unrealistic cross-selling goals, which were aggressively pushed through the retail business, led to the creation of 3.5 million fake accounts by customer representatives who were driven to meet institutional objectives of running afoul and unforgiving corporate culture. The few employees who sought to ring alarm bells were either ignored or fired. Um, so you really seem to claim here that it was due in large part to the culture of Wells Fargo that stemmed you know, from the standards and stress they put on the employees. Um, however, a company like Wells Fargo could argue that this kind of competitive environment with the right corporate culture is what really drives results and allows them to perform well. Where do you think um, the corporate boundary between fostering a competitive edge and creating incentives is for unethical behavior? And how does the idea of like, motivated blindness play into this? Sure. So, you know, so I give, um, I delve into the, the Wells Fargo case uh, in the book and I, it's in some ways, Wells Fargo is a proxy for, for other firms. I, I don't wanna create the impression that obviously they, they went through an enormous scandal and uh, they, they were an outlier, but they're also part of a spectrum. And uh, presumably the problems that you see at Wells Fargo are replicated in some shape or form in, in other firms. What did stand out though at Wells Fargo um, were a couple of things. One is that the, the targets uh, and specifically the cross-selling targets seem to be unrealistic. Uh, and there, so there was an incredibly hard charging uh, uh, set of goals that uh, kept creeping up and that were introduced um, uh, uh, years before the, the scandals, uh, the, the, the scandal surfaced. And, and, you know, and what's interesting about this is that there's nothing nefarious about what they were trying to do in the first place. This idea of cross-selling is, is a good one. It's, uh, in fact, when, you know, I spent years um, in management consulting and I, you know, I worked on studies where we implemented, where we suggested cross-selling targets to banks. And, and it makes a ton of sense because if you're a bank and you have a set of customers, well, what you find is that it's more profitable for you to try to uh, sell the incremental product to an existing customer than to uh, try to gain an incremental customer. It's just, it's an, it's an easier path, right? And so what you care a lot about is the share of wallets of each of your customers. And then, so focusing on this is, is, um, is it completely reasonable. It makes sense as a strategy. The challenge is that when you push that strategy to levels that are unrealistic and you push uh, your employees to to do that, and in their case, they, their ultimate goal was to try to have uh, to sell eight products to each of their customers. And, and as you can imagine, eight products, that's a lot, right? I mean, maybe you have a saving account, you have a checking account, maybe you have a mortgage, maybe you have insurance, but eight, eight is hard. 
And, uh, um, and so you take those unrealistic goals. And then on top of that, it seemed like there was an informal culture at Wells Fargo that was all about um, all we care about are the outcomes. And we don't care so much about how you get there. And the confluence of unrealistic goals and an informal culture that was uh, very much about the end results ended up uh, generating that you know, next scenario, which from the outside seemed completely implausible. I mean, how is it possible that so many employees, I think it was over 5,000 employees were involved in creating fake accounts. And you're talking about three and a half million fake accounts. And, and by the way, this is, this is not, this was not their intention, obviously, because uh, it's not like they were scheming uh, at, at a strategy, as a, as a, at a strat strategic level at the firm to say, hey, let's create these fake accounts, nobody's gonna notice. Because at the end of the day, when you go through these fake accounts, it didn't really add much at all to their bottom line. And in fact, many of these fake accounts didn't even generate revenues. So it was a unfortunate byproduct of, of these two uh, these two things, right? Unrealistic goals, an informal culture that that really focused on end goals over um, at all costs. And to your point, um, you know about motivated blindness. Um, there, this is where uh, it's reflective of broader issues in the industry. And, and I think the broader issues are one, um, structural factors that affect every large bank, uh, which is that since the, the early 1970s, banks have, uh, most large banks have been publicly listed. And this is challenging because now they're at the mercy of public markets and public markets have been increasingly focused on quarterly returns and so now they're really focused on trying to show uh, returns over really short periods of time. And that is often in conflict with the fundamental business of serving your customers with your customers' interests in mind. Right? So, so that's one thing. So you have a structural issue that is true for Wells Fargo, but it's true for every other listed bank. And then you have this, um, I think, uh, environment, uh, which is specific to finance, um, in, in that it's, uh, it really offers fertile grounds for cognitive biases. And, and here, I think, uh, Wells Fargo is a great example where you have a ton of pressure as a, as a relatively low employee to hit your, your targets. The targets are unrealistic. Um, through its informal culture, the firm has shown that it rewards people who get to these targets, no matter how they get there. And now you're so deeply embedded in a web of pressure and incentives that you end up uh, being on um, oblivious to the moral component of your decisions. Now, this is not to say these were all uh, great people and, and they did this not knowing what they were doing because that, that's probably taking a step too far in the sense that a lot of them actually like faked email accounts, right? And I mean, you don't do that unwittingly, but it's still the case that um, 
you know, their, their cognitive biases that, that certainly had a role to play. And you mentioned motivated blindness. Uh, they're clearly like senior people that notice what was going on below them and may have, uh, you know, had this bias where they tend to not process all the information when it tends to go against their own interests. And so, and, and, and you see this through the industry, right? I mean, Wells Fargo is an example, but there are like, you know, uh, like uh, multiple other examples that have come through uh, since then, and, you know, just, just in recent weeks, so like the, uh, the wire card scandal with the auditing firms. The, these are, you know, great examples also where presumably cognitive biases had a lot to do with what on the outside seems like an outrageous uh, end result. I guess I'm curious as to how you think companies should approach um, and create both um, an informal and formal culture that is competitive but doesn't uh, motivate unethical action. I know in the third chapter, you mentioned the best way to have a virtuous career is to join a firm that promotes this kind of behavior, but how do you create such a firm to begin with? That's tough. That's tough. I mean, for, um, for one thing, um, the it often has to do with your the horizons that you're dealing with right and the longer term your goals are and and the more you motivate and incent people and reward them on longer term performance the more you're likely to be aligned with your customers interests where where you see the conflicts often is when um, you need to show short-term returns and and that's when you know it's it becomes impossible right like it, it becomes impossible to you're solving for two constraints that are contradictory and so if you're setting up a firm the more you can create your incentive system for longer term goals uh, the more likely or the, the less likely you are to spur that kind of behavior. Uh, but you know, I don't want to sugarcoat it in the sense that it's hard, right? Because in order to uh, do this, uh, that means you should, you know, you're going to be willing to take time to show results. And often you have to raise capital if you're going to create your own firm. And in order to raise capital uh, that is longer term, uh, that's really hard. You know, most investors have also a short-term perspective. So you need to fight for that uh, because that's not where the industry is. And that's not where the norms are. And, uh, you know, and, and now I think it's helpful that you're seeing more and more long-term investors um, led by uh, those who are naturally longer term in their outlook because they have permanent capital, whether it's sovereign wealth funds or the endowments or the pension funds. Uh, but I, you know, it, it's tough. I know in the beginning um, of this discussion, you mentioned um, that girl that came to talk to you at the beginning of class and was like, I want to hear about like good cases. Um, I'm curious if you can think of any firms that have these traits and have these sort of long um, horizon mindsets that helps them achieve this culture balance. Yeah, so, and I, I certainly write about them in the book, and I would say, I mean, the first one you, you would have to bring up here is Vanguard. You know, and, and Vanguard, in some ways, it, it's such a, uh, you know, and, and it, it, 
there's a risk that other firms can't really uh, compare themselves to Vanguard because it's such a one-off. But it's still worth anchoring the discussion on Vanguard because it it does reflect so many of, of these values. Um, as you know, as, as most people know, Jack Bogle founded Vanguard in the early 1970s, and with a view that um, the uh, most individual savers would be much, much better off if they just put their savings into passive uh, investments, right? Passive, passively managed investments through, through in, uh, passive indices. And, uh, they, and the, the research has shown this since the early 1970s. And, and what's been curious about this is that it took 40 years for the research to seep into public consciousness. And, and now you're seeing the revolution taking place now, but it took 40 years. But he set up the firm really to, to push uh, that revolution. Uh, and, and he did it in a way that was, um, that was extreme in a sense, because not only he said, we're going to focus on uh, passive funds, passively managed funds that simply replicate indices, because one, it's lower costs for the customers, uh, and, and it's much better for them over time. But there's a real trade-off, right? Because uh, that means you're not paid nearly as much. You're, you're just, uh, if you, as, as a fund manager, you're, what you're doing is more like overseeing a, um, overseeing a, um, a back office function. So that was the first thing. The second thing he did was to set it up as a not-for-profit. He didn't have to do that but he set it up as uh, a, uh, a mutual. And he said, so that means like um, the excess profit that they make, so after of course, like all the you know, bonuses and so on are passed on to the customers. And so as a result, it's, um, it even, you know, it lowers the cost even further. And that model, as it gained traction, and it's still unclear to me why it didn't gain traction earlier than it did, but as it gained traction, it's almost virtually like uh, you can't compete against this because of course it's the right product uh, for most people. And now this industry has taken off dramatically and, and is dominated by Vanguard and BlackRock and State Street. And, and that's really a force for good for customers. So I think Vanguard was set up um, and was anchored in values that was it was really all about the customers, right? And um, and I think, I mean, to you know, to the extent that we we talk about virtue in finance, and you know, what's a way to be virtuous in finance? Well, if you work for Vanguard, it's hard not to be virtuous in a sense. It, you know, is my personal opinion, because it's just a force for good. Now, that may be too extreme of an example because. Uh, you know, most of finance, first of all, it's a not-for-profit, right? So, uh, but even if it were a for-profit uh, company, it, it would still, I think, uh, fulfill um, its, uh, its social role admirably. Uh, th there are other firms, I mean, I mean, sticking with the asset management industry, I think, uh, you know, firms like Dodge and Cox are interesting. This is an old firm that was founded uh, decades ago, and it's kind of a discrete firm. And and what's interesting about them is that 
you know, the, the real criticism of the asset management industry over the years was that they were essentially overcharging customers and they, uh, because their customers on average would have been much better off just getting a passive fund uh, replicating the, the market for, for almost nothing, right? The cost of getting that is very, very low, but they were charging a lot of fees for actively managing funds that were uh, seeking to beat the market. But when you look at the numbers, the vast, vast, vast majority of these funds never beat the market over time. And so you were, you were worse off. And uh, Jack Bogle, who um, you know, ended up being an, like the real anchor to, to the seminar I've been teaching uh, for, for the last 10 years or so, for seven years he came to the seminar and spent time with the students talking about this. Uh, he would always kind of frame it as the real skill set of the asset management industry is marketing, not investing. And, uh, and it's true, so much of, they spend so much uh, capital, so much money marketing that that money had to be passed on to their customers, right? So uh, by definition, that increased the cost of their product. Dodge and Cox is an interesting one because they don't do marketing. So they entirely focus on the investment function. Um, and, and as a result, they're able to have lower fees than other firms. Now, this is one where the commercial interests might converge uh, with virtuous behavior, uh, but there are trade-offs for them, right? Because they're, they're not as well known, it's more discrete firm, but in a way they're, they're doing the right thing. Um, so so there, there are all sorts of firms out there that are quite thoughtful about the way they approach customers, the way they interact with, with stakeholders. I guess just to quickly push back on that point, Professor Deswan, uh, when people think about asset management industry, when people think about passive investing, mutual funds, it often, the, the image that, that pops up in the mind is often, you know, a, a relatively slow moving, less of a cutthroat kind of environment compared to uh, other niches in the finance industry. For example, if you're a VC firm in Silicon yeah. Valley, where you are expected to go meet 200 startup founders every week to, to, to right. get those deals. If you're in like a mega fund like Blackstone and you have eight associates and only two of them will eventually become vice presidents, it becomes extremely cutthroat. If you are at uh, the trading floor, I don't um, typically, very stereotypically described as, you know, the Goldman Sachs or the Morgan Stanley trading floor where people are shouting at each other trying to sell something. So I feel like those are the places where it seems almost impossible to create this kind of everybody is happy, everybody creates value type of scenario, right? Or Yeah, no, so, so I, I, you know, I, this is an area that I, I, um, I, I spend time thinking about because obviously I, you know, I work in an investment fund myself. And, uh, and I think this is one where um, so this is an emerging area of research. So there's not a huge amount of empirical analysis on this, but there is some. And, and it goes to the core, I mean, to the extent that you're talking about investment firms, it goes to the core of which are the type of firms that create social value and uh, which ones are the ones that are more likely to extract value uh, from society. And I mean, to this point earlier, I think it's, it's, 
it's very important to know because if you're entering the industry, it's much easier to try to position yourself by going into a firm that inherently creates social value because you're more likely to end up being virtuous yourself by, by being in that kind of firm than, than others. And I mean, you mentioned venture capital firms, and this is an interesting one because if you look at um, traditional alternative assets, investment strategies, um, the, if you look at the empirical research of their impact on society, venture capital is the one where there seems to be the least uh, disagreement about in terms of the research in that it's helpful to society. And it's uh, in terms of, um, so, you know, how do you think about whether it's helpful to society? Well, I, you know, I, I think of it in, in one of three ways. Um, if, if it's, if you're looking at an investment strategy, one is that it has to generate attractive financial returns, right? Over time. Because if, if you don't generate attractive financial returns over time, you're just unsustainable to be, so that's kind of a litmus test, right? But then, so, so let's assume that's the case. And then what happens next? Well, the question then becomes, um, do you support the real economy in any shape or form, right? And that's not an easy question to answer often uh, because uh, in, in some ways, it's one that might be more, um, uh, more relevant for the extremes. So if you're lending to small and medium-sized businesses, odds are like you're supporting the real economy, right? If you're trading complex derivatives that you're structuring with an investment bank and you know, some option that has three legs that, doesn't, that you concocted, and on the other side, there's no counterparty. It's the bank that are putting these pieces together. Uh, it's hard to make the point that you're supporting the real economy, all right? So, so that's the second piece is, are you supporting the real economy? The third piece to this, which is not relevant to all investment strategies, but relevant to some of them is, do you, are you improving the underlying asset or business that you're investing in? And that's really the realm of, you know, what I would consider the activist in, uh, strategies. That's not the way people usually use that term, but I would say venture capital, private equity, shareholder activism would fall under this. And venture capital, when you look at, so what's the impact on society of venture capital? The indirect impact, not their returns. So their returns over time have been strong um, relative to their risk benchmarks. But when you look at what's the impact on employment, what's the impact on innovation, on R&D? And um, generally, the spillover effects are positive in that industry. And, uh, and they're, in fact, so positive in terms of supporting the economy and, uh, and pushing innovation and so on and enabling innovation that it's often become a matter of public policy for certain governments to try to develop the VC industry, right? So, so you see Japan, for instance, or Israel have proactively tried to develop their VC industry. Now, this doesn't mean that there are no issues in venture capital, right? Like there, there are a lot of issues in venture capital. And one of them is 
Well, first of all, when you look at their returns, their returns on average are attractive, but there's no such thing as the average venture capital return because it's incredibly skewed towards the top 20% of the firms that generally account for all of the profits in the industry, right? So, and then when you look at the effect on the economy, there is real hurting behavior in, in venture capital where there are areas that are uh, fashionable in a sense, they're trendy. And that's where everybody in the industry is gonna invest. And so that leads to overinvestments in uh, uh, like overinvestment in a few areas, you know, whether it's, I don't know, like augmented reality, smart transportation, gaming apps, right? It doesn't mean that, you know, it's great that we're investing in smart transportation, but you, you have this hurting effect where everybody is, you know, there, there's so much uh, investments going into that. And that means uh, the corollary is that, the, or the flip side rather is that you, there are a lot of areas that are being unfunded and where the venture capital industry is not stepping in. So, so there are issues with it, uh, but I would say by and large, if you look at the data, it's supportive of, if you work in the VC industry, um, you're probably creating value. Private equity, the data is not as strong, but somewhat supportive. Shareholder activism, um, surprisingly, the data uh, is not particularly supportive. And I would say surprisingly, because the mandate of shareholder activists is to improve the companies they invest in. Um, so that's a little bit disappointing um, and that the data is not more clearly showing that it creates social value. I, I guess I was probably also very confusing my, my, in, in phrasing my question. I guess there were two parts uh, to, to our discussion. One is uh, within a corporation or investment firm or any institution's internal organism, how a leader yeah. or, or a culture can be established to encourage better incentives. And the other side is how this firm itself or this industry itself may have right. a positive or, or negative impact on the society. And, and I think you obviously touched on both, in, in, I, I, but just zooming in slightly more, I guess, on the first part before diving into to more about uh, industry's yeah. impact on, on society. There was a very, very interesting part that, that you quoted uh, Stanford behavioral economic and this self-proclaimed realist Jeffrey Pfeffer, uh, mm -hmm. who says that servant leadership is the exception, not the norm among corporate leaders. Um, a self-proclaimed realist, he argues that in the real world, assholes tend to win as much as we would like to observe the opposite. So uh, you give a counterexample and you argue that this is not often the case. So I'd love to hear a little bit more of your thoughts on I guess within each firm, how exactly one could help build out that that nice culture? Yeah, and first of all, I you know just to uh, to to be clear, I you know I think uh, uh, Jeffrey Pfeffer uh, makes an argument that is completely depressing. Um, I mean, it's, it's super depressing, right? I mean, he's saying like really like selfish. Uh, people are often the ones that make it to the top. And, and unfortunately, you know, it's, uh, his argument is relatively convincing, actually. And so I, just to be clear, I'm not suggesting that being a better person will make you more successful. And I wish, I wish I could make that argument. Uh, 
but the argument that I make is slightly different, which is uh, try, trying to be a, a virtuous person uh, will, uh, I think, for some people, make their life more fulfilling in the Aristotelian sense of, of that concept. Um, and it will allow you to be successful, and it can allow you to be successful in the industry to the extent that you broaden your, your definition of success. But I don't know that it's going to make you more successful. Um, so, so that's an important piece. And which is why I reluctantly brought up, uh, uh, you know, Professor Pfeffer's research, because it's depressing and it's, it's probably right. Now, there's a counter piece to this, uh, which is that it's not always the case that uh, self-serving, greedy, uh, narcissistic people get to the top. And this is where there's that ray of hope. And it's the wonderful uh, research, uh, the wonderful book by uh, Adam Grant called Give and Take, which shows that uh, in, the, uh, in, in the industry, if you, if you bucket people into different categories in terms of uh, how they think of reciprocity in their interaction with peers and colleagues and so on, uh, it's actually the ones at the tops are not the takers who try to extract value uh, from, from you. Uh, it's not necessarily the matchers who try to simply reciprocate, but there's a subset of givers that do very well. So, so that's very encouraging, right? Now, to your point, Tiger, around like, how do you, um, how do you establish a culture at a firm that tries to promote these values? Um, well, one is, I think, it's all about the informal culture, right? Because uh, every single finance firm in the world will say that they prioritize their customers' interests. So, so what they actually say doesn't mean much at all. It's the informal culture. And it's about how do you reward people internally? That's the key, right? Because that's what people are going to look at internally in terms of who gets to be promoted, who gets to earn more. And, and that will, because for all the talk about, you know, trying to be thoughtful about virtue and so on, you're driven by incentives. And, to the, and, and the incentives are going to shape that informal culture. So it's all about uh, if you want to create that informal culture, then, then you have to back it up with, here are the people I'm promoting, here are the people I'm rewarding, because they're actually looking out for uh, the customer's interests. Maybe they're also, they have tremendous followership internally, right? Like people who are devoted to them, uh, regardless, because they're empowering their colleagues, they're helping them develop, they treat them with dignity. Like they, um, so, so those are the things that, that you would look for, to, uh, I think, in priority. Would you say it's fair uh, to say that you can only really create new systems with this, you know, with a good individual at the, at the helm, or can you actually change existing systems? 
um, that may not have a great culture? And how would you go about doing that? Yeah, so that's hard. That's hard, right? And, and this is where I want to be realistic because the book is primarily targeted at young folks who are either you know, considering the industry or who are now in the industry. Um, if you go in to uh, you know, whatever investment bank and, and you're looking to wage your personal vendetta, uh, you're just not going to last long, right? So that, that's not going to be um, a um, necessarily a helpful approach. Um, so, so you need to, so the, the primary thing is when you're going into the industry or whether you're in the industry and think about your role in society, then it's about picking, uh, picking your spot, right? So there's a subset of uh, areas in the industry that where you would certainly argue it's, it's more conducive to creating social value. And there are certain firms whose culture is more conducive to that. But I, you know, it's not easy because very often for these firms, you don't know. Like you, you, you have to go deep inside to understand what the internal dynamics are. Um, so I would say first, it's about picking your spot. And then within the organization, because obviously a lot of, you know, a lot of my students are going to find themselves in organizations where they look around and they might say, wow, this is, you know, this is pretty uh, sharp elbowed. And, and then it's about being thoughtful about, uh, like thinking about that framework um, as, a, as a guiding uh, principle and, but, but not, not uh, using it to wage a personal vendetta. And frankly, a lot of that framework over time uh, internally in organizations that are, that are sharp elbowed and, and that are not thoughtful about this will be about asking questions, right? And it'll be about trying to create greater transparency. It may not be about advocating from day one because I do feel that in a lot of these organizations that you might consider, uh, um, you know, however you want to describe it, um, a, a lot of them are populated by very smart, uh, thoughtful, well-intentioned people, but the logic of the industry makes them overly focused on that short-term incentive. And the question is, how do you create more transparency on these aspects or more relevance on these aspects that are not uh, getting embedded in the decision-making process, right? And that's where um, I think that new generation coming in that is probably more tuned in to these issues can, can, can make a difference over time, but it's not going to be overnight. Uh, Professor Deswan, I, I need to ask you a very long follow-up question, just trying to play devil's advocate a little bit about this point, because I, I think you, you sure. brought up a fascinating point about how uh, the system often incentivize individuals to focus on short-term in incentives. And therefore, uh, if we can educate a young generation of leaders to, to go into the industry and become individual actors of good faith, that could help change the system. Um, but I, so I was uh, listening to this podcast interview between Eric Weinstein and Daniel Schmachtenberger, who was this very eccentric, eccentric guy working on 
long-term civilization design stuff like that and, and they talked about one concept which is the called the uh, multipolar trap or or you can you can call it as this kind of zero-sum game as a, a way to characterize the rivalry between human beings in, in the sense that if i got uh, a promotion then rupa cannot get it if i uh, get some intangible resource that is limited then rupa cannot get it so therefore it is very easy for rupa and i's competition to devolve into a zero-sum game and therefore be in this trap and therefore in order for us to fundamentally get out of this and and disincentivize disincentivize unethical behaviors in finance and business it seems that you would need a fundamentally different system of better sense making better choice making you, you need to have uh, better resources that everybody can get promotions, everybody can feel comfortable and happy and, and feel like they're, they're getting the recognition they need and considered to be successful, that they don't have to climb up the corporate ladder, that I don't have to stab Rupa in the back. Be because then what would happen is that if I'm a good person and Rupa stabs me in the back, then I say, okay, that seems to be the person that's doing well and somehow she's getting the resources, then everything kind of devolves uh, down from there. So I I, 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 I'm very, very pessimistic in seeing a way out because you could educate these very, very nice freshman students who after getting their first internship, they realize, oh, oh my God, that kid just sucked up to the boss and got a, a, a much better deal than, than me. Um, so yeah. I'm sorry for my, for my very long- No, but you're, you're right, it's, it's tough. It's tough and that, that's why I wanna be realistic and, and say, look, the, the easier path here is to pick your spot in the industry. Now, to your point, uh, a lot of spots in the industry are the ones where you're gonna find yourself are not the right spots necessarily. And it is what it is because uh, you're, you're motivated to go there because it's gonna be a great training. It's gonna be great on your resume. Uh, it's what everyone else does. And that makes a ton of sense. And the question is, what do you do internally in order to challenge these norms and culture. And, um, and here's my sense for uh, what you can do if you find yourself in that position, right? Like you're, you're, you're senior at Princeton, you get a job in investment banking, you start and you're doing M&A. And for whatever reason, you feel like um, they're, they're all, you read the book and, and you see like seven red flags, you know, relative to the role model individuals and firms that you read about in the book. So what do you do, right? And, and my point is you shouldn't necessarily like get out. Um, I, I don't think that serves uh, anyone because by being thoughtful about it, you, you can make a difference. But by the same token, I don't think you should like wage a, a campaign internally right away because that's not gonna help you, right? So there are a few things I would say. One is that um, within these organizations, it is always helpful to be skilled uh, at the core function of the organization because that will afford you uh, a lot more credibility. And that will, uh, one, make you more valuable. People are gonna listen to you more and you're just gonna have more impact, right? So in, the, in a strange way to be, like, to be virtuous effectively also implies that you should try to develop your skill set very diligently. Like to be the most highly skilled M&A banker 
if you feel like your M&A firm or department is not particularly virtuous, in some ways, that will afford you much greater opportunity to change things than if you're if you find yourself floundering and and giving up and and not learning the skill set right so so that's the first thing uh the second thing is i would say to be realistic pick your spots internally and and what you could do is at any given point there are a few themes inside these firms that are about improving uh, the world, like ultimately, right? Jump on that bandwagon and, and pursue that because that's gonna be aligned, right? So if you think about like, what are the themes that are high priority today at these firms that are helpful to society? So one, I would say the shift to, from active to passive management, right? Two, ESG. That's a huge, huge theme that has become almost overnight, like a, an enormous priority for these firms, right? So that, that would be one where you could go in. And third, like if I'm, if I'm sitting here, I just graduated from Princeton in May and I find myself in M&A, what's another theme that is gonna tremendously resonate? Diversity, right? So, raise your hand and say, I want, I want to be deeply involved in that effort, right? So, so there are ways, I think, to be uh, strategic about where you can add value internally and push the ball forward. So I want to kind of come back to this third pillar that you mentioned, which was treat others with dignity. Uh, and it relates to your point about creating diversity within a firm. Um, I'm very curious as to whether we're actually seeing um, the system in these new firms actually working. You give an example of Bridgeway Capital Partners is a firm that does a great job managing inequity within the firm by capping the highest partner's compensation at seven times the lowest paid individual. Can you elaborate on why this is a great example of humanistic um, leadership? And why do you think that partners choose to stay at this firm if they could be compensated somewhere else? Right. So what, what, one of the issues, of course, uh, that we've seen in our society uh, over the last few decades is rising inequality. Um, and um, it's, it's likely that the finance industry has contributed to this. Um, and the question is, um, the, the impact of the finance industry is on everything outside of the finance industry, of course. Uh, but to, you know, to the extent that we look inside the organizations of financial firms, it's also useful to think about the inequality within them. And this idea that uh, the CEO or the senior management should uh, make a uh, hundred times what the lowest paid person uh, speaks to, to certain values, which, which, can be, which can be good, right? And it can create a lot of motivation to excel and there are organizations that work very well as um, star systems, right? And so the star system is the one where uh, at its extreme, uh, people sink or swim. Uh, the firm is gonna inherently focused on those who, who, who rise very quickly and devote all of its resources to these stars, but it generally promotes a culture that is competitive internally and uh, where 
you might see a little bit less of the virtues that, uh, that I see in, in some of the role models I studied. And so to the extent that uh, you have a choice and that you create your own firm, I do feel like this idea that um, you would, uh, you would uh, uh, not create this gigantic gap between the top performance and the bottom performance performers also creates, um, I think, an environment where you can nurture talent better over time because what you also find is that the people that are stars at financial firms are often people that are that come in uh, and do well because they already have these inbuilt networks at these firms. And uh, the reality is that there are a lot of people that are not going to rise and perform so well in the first like few months, few years even, because it's going to take longer time for them to to get to that level simply because they don't have these inbuilt like connections and you know they they came in and they they weren't on the uh, you know lacrosse team at Princeton, and so uh, they weren't at the same eating club, right? And, uh, and, and who are the people who typically have a lot of these connections when they come in? It's, it's often males and it's often white males, right? And so I do feel like over as a long-term HR strategy, I like the idea of you know, Bridgeway as an example of a firm that, that uh, likes to think of itself as a team uh, rather than a collection of, of stars. Right. And so, so that's why I thought it was interesting to highlight. Now, the other point is that the fact that they have that policy um, is indicative of 17 other things that they do well in that respect, right? Like you generally don't have that one policy and then you're not thoughtful about other things. Uh, it's, it's reflective of a lot of other things that would nurture um, a, a culture that is gonna be very supportive of colleagues and that's going to focus on their development and, and focus on the development of all the, the employees. Professor Deswana, I think uh, we, uh, um, going back to my earlier point that we were talking about both uh, uh, impact of individuals within the system and how to make an organization better and also the second part which is uh, an organization industry's impact uh, on, the, on the world, I think we're kind of going into the second part now which is how uh, these industries and these firms have a net positive or whether they do have a net positive impact on the world. And I do actually want to hear your thoughts on this because uh, we're talking about ESG funds, we're talking about impact investing, we're the, the, uh, green funds, so many names have popped up these days that, that and, and every single firm says they have a social mission, they donate their profits or, or whatever. Um, and what really bugs me is that uh, for, for students who often say, I want to go make tons of money on Wall Street so that I can donate those profits to charities. Or they say, I wanna to do tons of social good by first making a lot of money. And then, so, and, and it bugs me by saying, why don't you just directly go do the good thing? I mean, well, so, so it seems to me that the finance, again, this might be a very cynical and naive view of, of seeing things is that ultimately it's still about making money, right? Which is fine. I mean, and it's about, uh, reducing certain transactional frictions in this world, which is serves a foundational importance. Uh, and it is good that we're seeing those positive developments within the industry that 
uh, people are becoming more aware about those issues, whether it's diversity or inclusion. But, but fundamentally, again, the system is about making money. And, and instead of having to brand yourself as, as some sort of a mission, why, why don't you just do it? Right. Yeah. And so, so there's a, um, so there's a fascinating philosophy paper um, that was written by uh, an Oxford philosopher, young Oxford philosopher called Will McCaskill. And, um, and we actually debated in class, there, there's, a, there's a, a class that I do on the ethics of career choice. And are there careers that are more ethical than others? Right? Are you inherently a more ethical person if you become a doctor versus, I don't know, like an M&A uh, advisor? And, and he makes a very controversial point, uh, which is that if you want to do good in the world and you have a lot of options, so say you, you graduate from Princeton and, and you have you know, high grades and so you have options, um, should you work at Goldman Sachs or should you work at TFA, Teach for America, right? And, and for most people, the obvious answer, of course, you're going to work for TFA, right? I mean, that's like a wonderful organization. It's devoted to uh, improving the quality of public education and so on. And he says, no, you shouldn't make that decision. You should go work for Goldman Sachs because what you should do actually is work there, uh, become a partner, but along the way, uh, live like a grad student and, and pay the Delta to and donate the Delta to TFA. <laughs> and as a result, instead of having one person that goes to TFA, you, you're going to fund 10, 20, 100 at TFA, right? And so, so that's the argument. It's, it's an extreme argument, and, um, but, but it, it's a, a very tight philosophy paper that he wrote. And that was the genesis of, uh, I think, a, a broader movement of effective altruism that, that I, I think um, makes a lot of good points. And, uh, and as, uh, as, gen as I think garnered a lot of sway on campuses. Now, I'm, I'm against that idea. Like uh, the fundamental idea of the paper, I, I don't believe in because I, I don't believe we're wired in that way that if you wanna do good in the world and you end up you know, being an M&A advisor at Goldman and working incredibly hard um, and, um, and that you're, you're, you're just not gonna perform. It's gonna be hard for you to perform. I think it's actually gonna be hard for you to maintain the discipline of giving throughout uh, your career in the way that, that you advocate. And, and just to be fair, I think over time, um, he has softened his position to make it more practical and realistic. And, and his latest book, I, I think is, is very thoughtful on this, but, but still it is, it is the case that in my mind, I wouldn't necessarily tell people that uh, you can only be virtuous by, uh, you know, working for Teach for America or being a doctor or something like that. And, that, and that's the point of the book is that um, the finance is, is an industry that is complicated and that is very conflicted and that over time has arguably swayed away from its primary mission. But at the same time, I do feel like there are ways to be virtuous, even in this context, right? And, and as a result, I think 
um, you can go in and do good for the world. Uh, and, you know, ideally, or ideally, more simply by picking your spots. But even if you, you don't pick your spot in a sense and, and you end up in, you know, the sharpest elbow area, I think over time there are ways in which you can act virtuously. And now I don't want to dismiss the, you know, this idea that you can do well also by donating thoughtfully, generously, uh, but it has to be accompanied by uh, thoughtful behavior inside, you know, the job. Like you can't just like pillage and then <laughs> donate, right? And, yeah. And, I, and I'm, you know, this is too extreme, of course, but yeah. I, I think we, um, I keep throwing uh, these radical theses at you and we gradually tone them down and moderate them back. And I, and I think you make some wonderful arguments about how individuals, first of all, can make uh, their own surroundings and their own environments, their own microcosms a better place and making the people around them better. And then try to be more thoughtful, live more thoughtfully, donate more thoughtfully. And um, one should live out one's mission and life like that. But uh, I, do, I do want to ask your thoughts on, on I guess, the finance industry, because you, you were talking about how uh, one could make the mon money by pillaging it and, and then donating it. But do, do you ever feel like parts of the money-making operations in the finance industry are simply quasi-Ponzi schemes? Um, and, and I'll give you, again, a very extreme example, which is that if a private equity firm says they manage some pension funds money and, and doing good, but in order to maximize the returns for those pensioners, they have to first buy out a factory, fire a bunch of people, maximize the profits, and, then, uh, and, and basically they return those profits to the, to the pensioners they fired or, or some other pensioners that other people fired. And it just seems that, okay, instead of saying you guys want to do good and, and whatever, maybe don't do anything. Maybe, maybe try to not harm first. And, and yeah. I think um, that's another central argument to, to a lot of people. It's, I mean, many people like Nassim Taleb who, who critique this, even policymakers who say, don't think about how to make the financial industry a better place or a more stable place. You should try to do least harm first. And, and I think yeah. uh, I would love to hear a little bit more thoughts on um, whether throughout your career you ever look at something, you go, that, that, does, that does not <laughs> sound very nice to me. Yeah. Look, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Sure, I, I think um, there's been uh, greater awareness of this since the global financial crisis, because um, uh, you know I, I think there was a period uh, in the 1990s and 2000s where um, so we went through a lot of growth, uh, both the finance industry and, and advanced economies, and a lot of the focus of the industry of, uh, sorry, of academic research and of the media was around this idea that finance was a force for good and that it, it helps society. And then you have the global financial crisis. And obviously that's a traumatic event that impacted millions and millions of people uh, terribly. And, uh, and the finance industry was at the core of it. And so since then, a lot of uh, media's attention, a lot of academic research has pivoted to what are the ways in which finance is not always a force for good in society? And, and we've seen a lot more examples and, and we have a better understanding. And so, yes, you are right that there are lots of pockets in the industry that if you shine a light on them, it, they look terrible, right? Uh, the, the example of 
uh, you know, the, some of these retail products in Europe that are structured derivatives. So where there's a huge asymmetry of information between the finance firms and their customers. And more often than not, what they end up doing is targeting the most um, vulnerable customers because they're the ones who are least likely to understand the product by and having them overpay for the product because there's no way they could ever price that product well. If you're the customer, there's no way to understand how to come up with the right pricing for these, for these products. And there's a very interesting research that shows um, that these types of retail products in Europe are uh, like they target uh, very specifically not the people like me, but the, the people that they think are, are, are less likely to understand them, right? So, so you know, those are concerning. And, and there are like extreme examples of, you know, I, I know uh, in France, like in the savings, uh, local postal offices that sell savings products, you end up seeing like six-legged options that are offered to retail customers in ways that are impossible for them to understand and, and importantly to understand the pricing of. And of course, they're going to be overpriced, right? And what you find is that the more complex these retail products, uh, the more profitable they are for the finance firms. Uh, credit cards is the same thing, right? I mean, you see a lot of behavior in the credit card industry that suggests that they're targeting the more vulnerable, the most vulnerable people. And, and it's incredibly, you know, the fine print is really hard to understand. And on average, it's 5,000 words. And it's at a reading level that's greater than the average uh, reading level for US citizens and, and so on. So you see a lot of these, that egregious behavior. Um, and you mentioned private equity. Um, so private equity is interesting because at, on, on the whole, the data suggests that it's helpful. But we also know that there are a lot of instances of excesses. And one of the trends that we're seeing right now is a rise in dividend recaps, in re dividend recapitalizations. And that's a trend that's problematic. Everybody knows it. And, but you're seeing it happening right now, which is this idea that, um, you know, in private equity firms and, and particularly the subset that do leverage buyouts by these mature firms um, and they, they typically, so they take control, right? So they usually buy the whole firm or at least they control these firms. And as soon as they acquire them, they're going to lever them up dramatically and very, uh, very early in the process, we'll do a dividend, a special dividend to the shareholders, meaning them. And so as a result, they can recoup very early on a large part of their investment, which means that now their interests are less aligned with those of the company they acquired. And, and we know in the past that they've levered up too much to the point where as soon as the cycle turned, uh, a number of these companies will go bankrupt, right? And so, so you can see here like challenges in, in that industry. But yes, I mean, there's no question that there, there are uh, problematic uh, areas and 
and you know things that that look terrible and and the best thing you can do is shine a light on them because now that's going to create a lot of pressure whether it's the media whether it's academic research and eventually it can seep into regulation too We've talked pretty extensively about your observations um, of, you know, the financial industry, but I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience working in finance, um, your career trajectory. And I, I heard that like uh, Cornwall Capital is related to the firm, like Big Short. I'd love to hear about how you arrived uh, to be a partner there. Sure. I, um, well, I mean, my entry point into the industry was a little bit non-standard. Um, you know, I, I think I, I, I mentioned to Tiger uh, early, before the podcast um, that I, I actually studied history of art um, and political science as an undergraduate. I thought I wanted to do a history of art PhD. I spent a summer working for Sotheby's um, and then decided it wasn't, it, it wasn't quite for me and that uh, you can have a passion for art and continue through your life uh, having that passion and and engaging in art without making it your profession. Uh, but, but then I studied in grad school, public policy, economic development. And I ended up um, working at McKinsey and Company, a management consulting firm for a number of years. Um, and I, you know, I, I think it's a wonderful firm. It's, uh, uh, of course, it's, it's had its shares of issues uh, or in recent years, but uh, it is a deeply, deeply thoughtful firm in the way it treats its employees and, and develops them. And um, I went there thinking I would spend a couple of years, and of course I ended up spending five just because it was, it was so interesting and engaging. Uh, but eventually uh, I, I moved to the buy side and with this idea that um, investing could be a force for good because you're allocating capital and could that uh, perhaps uh, have a, a, a role in the economic development cycle. And so I started um, and I, I became, uh, I, I went to work for a hedge fund. And it was, uh, it was a long short equity hedge fund focused on Asia. And it took me about a week to realize that I would have literally zero impact on economic development in Asia uh, because uh, you're, you're basically trading in the secondary market. So it's basically a bunch of hedge funds trading between each other, buying and selling shares, and it has no impact whatsoever. Uh, you know, and maybe I could have figured that out before. Uh, but it, but it, it, was, it was incredibly interesting. It was right at a time when capital markets were exploding in Asia. And, um, and I was seeing a lot of fascinating trends uh, that were related both to the development of uh, financial markets in Asia, but also just in general to the, the rise of uh, Asia as, a, as an economic, uh, economically powerful region, particularly China, uh, and, and, and um, a lot of other countries like India. Um, and, my, uh, and at that point, I, I ended up teaching because uh, I, uh, I taught as a grad student, and, and that's my, my true passion is teach, teaching. And so I, uh, and then I, I ended up dividing my time between teaching and, and being an investment professional. And uh, for, so teaching for the last 12 years at, at Princeton and, and working with undergrad students as a faculty advisor and, and doing a lot of things that have been, uh, that have been enormously privileged to, to be able to do. Um, and, and to your point about Cornwall Capital, 
So this is a uh, this is an investment firm that I've been part of for uh, the past ten years or so, and it's a very it's a small firm. It's uh, I would say we're very quirky, very unusual, um, in the sense that uh, at the core it's a family office. So it's the family office of of the the founder, uh, my partner uh, Jamie May who created uh, the firm in 2002 as a, um, um, as a family office. And his father uh, had run one of the oldest uh, private equity firms in the US for about 25 years. And, um, the, and I, it's a very quirky firm that's very, very thoughtful. Um, and it has the unusual uh, distinction of being able to invest in just about uh, any place, anywhere. And so I will uh, spend part of my time uh, looking at global macro investments, um, but also spend a lot of my time doing shareholder activism in Japan, one of the themes in recent years, and also, also be engaged in venture capital. So, so it's just that I've been incredibly lucky to find uh, partners uh, that are, are you know, smart, and but also I think um, have an interesting uh, approach uh, to the world, and 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 that's particularly true. I think uh, uh, Jamie May is, is a very thoughtful person, and yes, and and you mentioned they were involved in. So this is a very discreet firm in general. It's a very small discreet firm, but uh, they they were written up um, in uh, in the book by Michael Lewis, The Big Short, because they were one of the few. Uh, firms that saw the subprime crisis come, um, and and they they positioned themselves uh, in uh, and shorted uh, um, so, some of the some of the securities uh, that that reflected the subprime mortgages, and but that that was before I joined. I joined them about a year and a half, a couple years after that happened. Um, yeah, it is one of the, the many hedge funds with no website if you google yeah. them it's, it's just one address <laughs> we're yeah we're we're uh we've been very successful at being discreet i think <laughs> since, since the since the book because obviously there was a a, a movie after that and <laughs> uh but uh we uh and i think in the movie we're we're called brownfield because we we asked not to use the the cornwall name uh, I, I won't ask you to divulge any of the investment secrets, uh, but but I do also want to quickly follow up. So you said you were an art history major. Uh, I studied art history in, in, in high school. I applied to Princeton as an art history major. I actually worked at Christie's. I didn't work at Sotheby's. So it's a, okay. I, I worked at Christie's right. uh, my freshman summer. And then my, my sophomore and junior summer, I, were, I subsequently worked at a private equity firm and investment bank. So <laughs> completely <Okay. laughs> moved right. away from, uh, from, yeah. from that. So th that's my full disclosure. But I, I, I guess quickly following up about your teaching involvement and, and also your um, kind of professional services, uh, there, I feel like there are a lot of, there are not, probably not enough communications between people in the business or actual finance world and, and the academic world. Would, would you say that? Because I, I talk to grad students in finance or finance professors and, and I read books and people often say that the academia way of looking at things are sometimes inaccurate or they're slow or, or they try to characterize the finance industry 
through some model that is probably not accurate. And, and tons of scholars have even critiqued uh, traditional finance scholars. And yeah. um, I would love to hear a little bit your thoughts because you are very much a, a theorist and practitioner. So, yeah, I actually think that is that has evolved. That that's been very true. Um, but I do feel like the global financial crisis changed that uh, because there this there was an enormous amount of soul searching. Uh, I think in uh, in economics, um, in academe, uh, because of the fact that prior to the global financial crisis, one, not a lot of academics foresaw that uh, the the system collapsing, and um, and two, um, a lot of the field generally favored theoretical research over empirical research. And uh, since then, my sense has been that there's been a pivot where the field has, uh, first of all, try to understand where did it go wrong um, and try to improve itself. But also uh, there's been greater and greater focus on empirical research and on making the research uh, increasingly relevant. And you see that uh, in places like, so I'm affiliated with the Bentheim Center for Finance at Princeton. And that's certainly a place where there's a ton of research that goes on that's completely relevant to um, the real economy and to, uh, to the financial system and the risk of the financial system. And, um, and, that, and there's also the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance that does a lot of research in, in, that, in the same vein. Um, so I, I do feel like that's improving, actually. I kind of um, want to ask a question more broadly for all Princeton students and beyond thinking about a career in finance. Um, in terms of maximizing social good, is it ever the right decision for someone to enter finance as opposed to becoming a doctor, working in some other career with more um, direct benefits for society? I think sort of more plainly, should kids go into finance and should this many kids go into finance? Um, and how can individuals sort of best handle the fear of being corrupted by finance when they're in that industry? Yeah, so I think one is, it, it depends very much on where you are. So the, the answer is gonna be very different if, uh, if you're in New York City versus whether you're in the developing economy. Because uh, first of all, the research tends to show that uh, the growth of finance uh, tends to be positive on economic growth, economic development, up to a certain point. And that uh, there's a point at which uh, there's such a thing as too much finance. And we're obviously, we've been there in the US, right? And global financial crisis was a perfect example of that. And so, but there, there are a lot of developing economies where uh, that more finance is better. And it's not just more finance, it's more that transition from a bank-based financial system to a capital markets-based financial system. So it's really like the a true development of financial institutions, of modern liberalized financial institutions. And where if you're a Princeton student and you're going back home, say, to a developing economy, yeah, you, you can have tremendous impact there. And I, I wouldn't question it for, you know, for a minute that you're going to have a positive impact. I think that, you know, the question becomes, tougher if you're uh, looking to, to go work in the industry in, in the US and, or in New York, 
and again, you know, I, I think some in some ways we, you know, I overly focus on the parts of Kenyatta that are um, that create question marks, and and that tends to be you know Wall Street uh, broadly defined. There, there are lots of finance, you know, whether it's commercial banks, insurance companies, payment systems, that where um, you would uh, very naturally support the real economy, be helpful to society. Um, now, you know, I, I think whether, so say you're, you want to work in, in New York at one of the banks or, or hedge fund or, or private equity fund, then, then I think it's about Picking your spots, right? As, as we've talked a lot about, it's about you know trying to pick the the right spot in the industry, or at least at a minimum, being aware of what the impact of that industry is. What are the things that that industry does that that are helpful? What are the things that are not helpful? Um, and then within that subsegment, pick the right firm, right? And then once you're at the firm. And maybe you find, so if you, if you pick the right segment, you pick the right firm and you're in the right country, then you don't have to worry a lot about your impact on society. But if you end up at, you know, the, in the, at the opposite end of the spectrum, then it's, it goes back to, okay, what can you do from the inside? And I think the, the framework is, is a good way to at least think about like, you know, what, what are the areas to, to be mindful of and then, and then be strategic about uh, trying to to improve from the inside uh, these different areas. And then, you know, and, and then it may be that at some point you you can't do it, right? Maybe you've tried and you realize there's just too much of a conflict of interest. And and then and then it's a question of values as to whether you're comfortable staying in or or moving to another part of the industry where where these these interests are going to be more aligned. Uh, Professor Biswam, we, we don't want to take too much more of your time because I, I know this conversation has, has been so uh, fascinating and gone on and on. Uh, I, I do think probably to, to wrap up, before I ask you the policy punchline, I do think uh, you brought up so many very intricate points at the end, especially about how students should think about whether they should go into finance or not. And I think it's personally me coming in as a, as a freshman, uh, immediately seeing your freshman seminar listing ethics and finance i think what attracted me personally wasn't the ethics part it was probably the finance part and uh, and that is probably the reason what attracted a lot of students and somehow we're, we're just seeing how so many students want to go into finance these days for, for some reasons and, and maybe for a very valid and objective reasons that it is an industry yeah. that has a lot of information and talent, but also sometimes not for so valid reasons. And I think your book and, and your seminar and this conversation uh, do such a great job in terms of uh, dissecting some of those issues and, and laying out a sustainable and a meaningful path for people. So, uh, but at the end, uh, I, I, I do want to ask you, um, you, you seem very optimistic about the fact that finance can return to, to becoming a society good. Uh, why are you optimist? And, and since the name of our show is Policy Punchline, what would be your punchline for this interview at the end? Yeah, I mean, the, the reason I'm optimistic is, um, uh, so I, I think there, there are a few reasons, but one of them is I do feel like this generation of younger folks has been marked very deeply by the global financial crisis. And, and I think will probably also be marked very deeply and influenced very deeply by COVID. And, 
and the impact of that, I, my guess is that it's going to foster greater interest in understanding one's role in society. When everything's going well, you can pursue your self-interest without uh, focusing too much on your impact in society. But when, when the wheels come off and you see a lot of people suffering, um, there's, I think, greater recognition that, that you can't be on autopilot. And, and I see it amongst my students. I see it also amongst uh, you know, the many students that took my classes and that I keep in touch with. And so I am optimistic because I think the younger generation approaches finance uh, off, more often as um, a tool to address some of the economic and social problems that we're facing. But at a minimum, um, I believe that there's greater awareness of the downside of finance and that very fact will make people more, more thoughtful. And, and with the book, all I was trying to do, all I'm trying to do is create greater awareness of, of these, uh, the indirect impact that people have and try to show what a path might be to, to uh, create uh, value in society while working in a conflicted industry. Well, Professor Deswan, thank you so much. Wonderful punchline, and obviously uh, such a great conversation. Rupa, thank you so much for joining me today. It's just great to be, for me to, to talk to both of you today. Thanks so much. Great. Well, my pleasure. I very much enjoyed the conversation. And, and thank you for, for having me on and for having great questions that, that were difficult. <laughs> and and, and then, think deeper about these issues. Exactly. So, well, this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. You should totally go uh, check out Professor Deswan's book, Seeking Virtue in Finance, Contributing to Society in a Conflicted Industry. Uh, it would make your thinking more nuanced. Uh, it will uh, raise your awareness about some of those issues. It will not be a radical treatise to try to append your worldview on, on finance per se, but it will make you much more thoughtful in, in, your, in your path and, and, and beyond. So uh, thanks so much for listening today. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.